For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Your Case is on Hold, episode number four zero. We finally hit the big four zero, my friend. Yeah, we made it. They're still letting us do it. Still crazy after all these years, all these episodes. And we thank you for listening to our opinions because these are our opinions only and do not reflect anyone else at JBJS. As you probably have figured out by now, my name is Antonia Chen and I'm deputy editor of Adult Reconstruction. And we have here... I'm uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for Methods. Just opened my new West Coast branch, my new office, West Coast branch. Put the teacup on the saucer. It's ESCO, man. (laughs) Whatever makes you deliver, I'm on board. Mm -hmm. So... This is sponsored by Clinical Classrooms, East Coast, West Coast. It's everywhere you want to be and more. So we've got deliveries here for you today. We're going to start off with Top of the Pile, what's new in limb lengthening and deformity correction by Baffour et al. And it's permanently free, so you can get a new update on limb lengthening. There's three evidence-based review orthopedic reviews. There's also What's Important, Living and Thriving with Stress. By Ostrom. This is also permanently free, something that we all could use because stress isn't going anywhere, but how can you live with it and how can you thrive with it? So good lifestyle learning here. Trends in female authorship in orthopedic literature from 2002 to 2021, an analysis of 1,604, so wait, 1,068, wait. <laughs> 168,451. Authors. <laughs> Clearly, numbers are not my specialty. That's how I get in trouble. By Goddess et al. Capacity assessment tool to promote capacity building in global orthopedic surgical outreach by Shapiro et al. So, without further ado, now that we've reached our capacity of my ability to use numbers, Dr. Schoenfeld, tell me about neurologic outcomes after radiation therapy for severe spinal cord compression in multiple myeloma in a study of 162 patients, a number that I can wrap my head around. This is by Zilstra and colleagues. <clears throat> There's an infographic. Did you ever watch Mystery Science Theater growing up? Yes. Yes. I feel like we're the Mystery Science Theater of uh, orthopedic research. I have I have my crew here. So got my mini me and uh, friendly Count Dracula and uh, the Michigan football guy. See, this is perfect. This he's is worth watching the video for, guys. If you're not he's watching, saying we Dracules have a right to be proud. Whatever. What devil or witch was ever so great as Attila, whose blood flows in these veins? I know you can dress it for high. And what does that have to do with uh, neurologic outcomes after radiation <laughs> therapy for severe spinal cord compression and multiple myeloma, you ask? Well, it's a study of 162 patients. I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with Mystery Science Theater, it's like a guy and two puppets that, you know, make fun of like old movies. And um, I don't, 
I don't, it's not, we're not making fun of anything here, of course, except maybe ourselves and our tens of listeners um, every, every two weeks. Um, But this, this, this case is going on hold. It's just right off the bat, it's going on hold. And that's not because it was done, you know, across town from us at Massachusetts General Hospital. You can only do a study like this at a place that has, you know, relatively high uh, volume of, of patients. But this is like data that was collected over a decade. It's 162 patients with multiple myeloma and um, grade two or three ESCC who underwent radiation therapy. And then the primary outcome was the uh, AS, the a- Asia score after 12 to 24 months or the last known Asia score if they had repeat treatment. They're using multivariable regression analyses um, to look at factors associated with poor neurologic outcomes after radiation. So the first thing, we're talking about 34 patients with no improvement in in their impaired neurologic function and 27 deteriorated neurologically. 36 patients underwent either surgery or repeat irradiation. There's just a lot here that is just this clinical retrospective, clinical epidemiology, the experience over the last decade. Oh, by the way, there are secular trends there's restricted clinical variation, there's potential for truncation. It's the patients that they have, you know, hands-on, eyes-on, and are able to follow, but then also, you know, very small numbers in terms of of modeling outcomes. So when you do this, what we call kind of a, a, a data mine approach, a standard data mine approach, they do this regression analysis that it's just kind of, what are the risk factors for outcome X and procedure Y? Uh, or condition Z after treatment Y, that's kind of what you're looking at here. So they, you know, throw a bunch of variables against the wall and find the ones that are independently associated with poor neurologic outcome. That includes the baseline Asia, probably not a, sur- a surprise there. The ECOG score, which is the performance status score, again, performance status is also going to be aligned with their baseline Asia by and large. And then we already know that if performance status is bad to begin with, it's only likely to continue to deteriorate. Receiving steroids prior to radiation, is it the steroids themselves that are causing this issue? Probably not. It's probably that there is a selection bias for the use of steroids in people who the the treating physician saw there was already some clinical indication that these patients were deteriorating or going to deteriorate, and then the number of levels affected. When you look at the point estimates, and then you look at the confidence intervals, in some cases, they're several times larger than the point estimate. For example, receiving steroids, the point estimate is 4.4 odds, allowing for some rounding, but the confidence interval is 1.4 to 16.1. So major issues with precision here. I mean, there's only so much you can do with this data, but at the same time, it's sort of like, what does this data really show us? So if we ask the authors, what does your data really show us? What they tell us is, well, it showed that 38% of patients deteriorated or did not improve neurologically uh, after treatment for radiation. And the results highlight the need for multidisciplinary input and efforts in the treatment of high-grade ESCC in patients with multiple myeloma. Uh, That ESCC, I should have said, is uh, epidural spinal cord compression. They don't say more research is needed, but they do say future studies will help to improve patient selection for specific and standardized treatments and clearly delineate which patients are likely to benefit. What? How do you know what future studies are going to do? They, they're saying that future studies are going to improve patient selection and standardized treatments and then clearly delineate which patients are going to benefit. Even though a lot of the patients didn't actually benefit and actually deteriorated. But yeah. 
if you had a crystal ball, that's what you'd want. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this one is, um, it's, it's definitely, uh, this is, this is Transylvania and Transylvania is not England. And some things may be very strange to you, like propensity score matching, causal inference techniques. There's just a lot to, to take issue with in this particular paper. It's a hard patient population. That's what we can say for and sure. No, it's absolutely a hard patient population. I mean, that much you can take away from it. But I think any individuals who even, you know, through their training or are dealing with these patients on a regular basis know that it's, and there's no favoritism here. There, there are plenty of authors on this paper who I work with regularly, several of whom I've trained and I've trained them in methodology. <laughs> well, methods editor. Time to get the pen out. (laughs) Yeah, well, I definitely wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't on this one. Another one that I wasn't on either is the next article that we have, which is revision total hip arthroplasty in octogenarians compared with septuagenarians. Is there a real difference? This is my main man, Chad Kruger. My main man. Good man. My main man. At all. And there's a commentary on this as well, too. So don't have to take my word for it. You can ask others what they think about it, too. So this brings up the question of age. Is age just a number or is age something real? Is 70 the new 50 or is 80 the new 60, right? Is Does it make a difference? Or is 70 the new 50 and 80 is the new 50 also? So is there a difference between 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds? And we've all seen it. Our 80-year-olds are becoming are still more spry than they were probably 10, 20 years ago and our 70-year-olds as well too. But unfortunately, as we tell our patients, if you undergo a hip replacement earlier on, you're likely to undergo a revision total hip arthroplasty at some time in your life, either due to wear or to fracture or infection or other reasons. So the purpose of the study was to compare total hip revision indications, perioperative complications, and readmissions between patients 80 to 89 and patient, and compare them to patients who are age 70 to 79. And the authors hypothesized that they would have similar outcomes. And they also did recognize that these numerical delineations of age were somewhat arbitrary, right? Why 70 to 79? Why 80 to 89? They just took these cutoffs. Um, They went on to say there's been a lot of studies comparing, let's say, 80 and above to, let's say, 60 and below. But they wanted to know if there's a difference by decade. It's a retrospective study looking at patients from January 2008 to December 2019. And it included initially 630 procedures, and they only wanted to look at first-time revisions, not re-revisions. So they were left with 572 revision total hip arthroplasties performed at a single hospital, and patients were stratified by the age group said before. Understandably, the number undergoing revision between 70 and 79 was higher, which was 407 patients versus um, those in the 80 to 89 uh, era, which was an N of 165, which represented 28.8%, which is a smaller number. There were differences in race, but the racial differences in the 70 to 79 group, there were more other category and more white patients. And the uh, Charleston comorbidity index was not surprisingly higher in patients who were 80 to 89. They found that the patients who were 70 to 79 were most commonly revised for aseptic loosening. And with regards to medical complications, arrhythmia was the most common medical complication. And overall, 80 to 89 patients, the patients aged 80 to 89, not surprisingly, did have a higher rate of uh, medical complications and readmissions. I'm going to go over that in just a second. They were most commonly revised for periprosthetic fracture versus aseptic loosening. 
A higher percentage of patients only had the stem revised in this patient population that's likely due to the fact that they had a periprosthetic fracture affecting the femur. Total operative time was longer in octogenarians than septuagenarians, again, given the nature of the fracture fixation and pattern that probably made a difference. And perioperative medical complications happened more often in the 80 to 89 category. And these, again, medical complications and readmissions were higher when adjusting for body mass index and indication for revision. I'm just curious as to why the authors only controlled for these two variables and not include things like the index procedure or sex of the patient um, or other variables that may impact it instead of just body mass index and indication for revision. Um, dislocation and the need for repeat revision were the most common reasons for 90-day readmission in the octogenarian group. And then they did a logistic regression adjusting for sex, BMI, and indication and found that patients 80 to 89 were at increased risk for 90-day readmissions. So the, controlling for those factors, they didn't control for Charleston comorbidity index, which I thought would have been interesting because that was obviously um, different between groups. So I'm curious if this still was a difference in 90-day readmission if taking CCI into account. Uh, periprosthetic fracture as an independent risk factor was found to be associated with elevated complication rates, which is not surprising because these patients normally have poor bone, harder healing, you know, weight-bearing status might be different. So it might be more difficult for patients to, I guess, bounce back from it. They did do a match analysis. They matched for sex, race, BMI, CCI, and total operative time. And they were only left with 146 patients in the octogenarian group and 161 patients in the septuagenarian group. And they found revisions to be significantly different with more periprosthetic fractures in the octogenarians. And the reoperation was higher for octogenarians. Um, and after matching, they still had higher rates of perioperative complications and 90-day re readmission. There were limitations, as I said. There's not a huge difference potentially some, between someone who's 79 years old and 81 years old. So it's hard to tell. There's a big difference. It's kind of like the BMI talk discussion that we always have, you know, if BMI 39 versus 41, is there actually a big difference with them? And they only were able to identify the index procedure date in 38% of cases. So it's a really small percentage because the time from surgery makes a big difference, right? If someone's in their 70s to 79, they can be 30 years post-op or they can be six years post-op, right? And if you're getting aseptic loosening, that's a different ballgame. Versus, you know, octogenarians, obviously, that are undergoing, they're likely have undergone total hip earlier with longer follow-up. And that could be as you know, prone to increased complications just by duration of having the implant. What I worry about though, while this is, you know, a comparative study between 70 to 79 and 80 to 89, I don't encourage people to do this across all of orthopedics. You know, you don't want to say, okay, look at revision hips. Now let's look at revision knees. Let's look at primary hips. Let's look at primary knees. Let's look at spinal stenosis. Let's do one level of decompression, two level of decompression, you know, all these sorts of things like that. When, when you get the comparison with ages this close may not bore out to the most clinically impactful research studies. I mean, you really said it there. That's, this just seems like the subtitle here, is there a real difference? They go through all of these statistical machinations and wrangling and, and, and all of these things. And then we get uh, like, sum is up and so this, this is higher and this is lower and in this one, it's this. And in that one, it's that. And I, I mean, at the end of the day, it all just seems like, these are really, you know, minor, however, statistically significant, probably not that clinically impactful differences. Obviously, if you have a higher fit, uh, a higher rate of periprosthetic fractures, then that's going to translate into higher rates of complications or higher need for revision because you don't just leave the periprosthetic fracture. <laughs> like, once there's a periprosthetic fracture, you have to do something more about it. It's generally a condition that demands some type of treatment. 
not not an option at that point in time. Versus yeah. aseptic loosening, there is an option potentially. So you know, um, sometimes we say the need for this work was not especially well substantiated, and that is probably where I'm going to leave this one. And yes, do not come with the follow-on study about revision total knees or revision spine surgery or revision carpal tunnel or revision bunionectomy in 70 to 79 versus 80 to 89. Although it might sway me. If I'm 79, am I going to wait those two years or am I going to get it done right away just in case? Well, I mean, that's really when you do these kinds of things, you really want to look at the um, the spline point, right? And is it like the difference between someone who's 79 versus 80? But there probably isn't. Okay. On the day that they turn 80, nothing magical happens. It's really just kind of a chronological memorialization of something. You get a candle, extra and on the cake. The, the, you know, the, the real questions at hand is I tell patients in the office all the time, age is not anything but a number. Sure. Okay. The 65 year old patient who is on oxygen and AFib and Eliquis and on dialysis, um, they're not going to get these types of surgeries. And the patient who is on 85, who's 85 and still running five miles every day, then, well, maybe they wouldn't even be a candidate for this. They don't need it, but uh, let's just say hypothetically they did. They're obviously a much better candidate for it. A lot of these patients, you know, you have to get to 80 to be able to have your total hip arthroplasty at 80. Right. The very fact that you made it to 80 is saying something about that individual's physiologic makeup or 85 or let alone 89. And on top of it too, it's one of those things where, you know, and again, you don't have to do revisions in some cases and you do in other cases. So, But the periprosthetic fractures, those ones kind of force you with a lower extremity periprosthetic, a lower extremity fracture of any type. Right. Makes a difference. But if they're getting that periprosthetic fracture because they're out motorcycling and they're being super active, right? Age is just a number. So, all right. Moving on to a yet another arthroplasty for those doing bingo, bing, uh, article. Rated graphic predictors of conversion to total knee arthroplasty after tibial plateau fracture surgery results in a large multicenter cohort by a cynic et al. There's a commentary, there's an infographic, and it is permanent free. So you have no excuse. Again, the trifecta of things that are available to you to not read this article. So we this- have to go to the Netherlands for this one. Yes. Vincent Vega, our man in Amsterdam for this. Hello to the canals. Hello to the bikes. It's a wonderful place to be. Red light district, um, all sorts of, you know, anything goes. Well, that's where the tibial plateau fractures are coming from. Converting uh, tibial plateau fractures to total means. There's bike accidents. There's other accidents. There's lots of options here. So tibial plateau fractures we know are common. And we often tell patients that they might have to undergo a total knee replacement in their future based on their tibial plateau fracture. But the question is when, right? Patients are like, well, how long is it going to be? Is it going to be a year from now? Is it going to be five years from now? Is it going to be 20 years from now? And other factors that predict when a patient will undergo a conversion total knee arthroplasty after tibial plateau fracture. So this is a multi-center study looking at four trauma centers, two were level one, two were level two, of 862 patients treated for tibial plateau fractures between 2003 and 2018, which is a long span, and fixation and things like that might have changed over that time frame. Minimum one-year follow-up, and they started out with um, over 1,000, so 1,035 patients. And of those, 862 are eligible. And they did a survey to all these individuals and 55% responded. So they had 477 people who actually responded to the survey for follow-up. 
Not to be fair, that's probably better than we would get in the States. Honestly, our responder rates probably be a lower here, but you know, 55 will take it ideally to be higher, but we'll take it in this sort of survey study. They did compare to responders with the non-responders and they saw small differences in age um, and they had small difference and proportion of women. Um, it was statistically significant, but we're talking 50 to 53 years old and 68% versus 61%. They looked at a bunch of measurements from the preoperative measurements from a radiographic perspective. They look at CT scans at the initial gap and step off, and they were assessed in the axial, sagittal, and coronal planes. Post-op measurements were only from x-ray, not from 3D imaging, and they were seen normally with less than within or less than two weeks after surgery. So it could be immediately post-operative or within the two-week time frame. They looked at condylar widening, articular fracture reduction, and they measured that by the residual incongruity between on the articular surface or maximum gap and step off. And they looked at the coronal and sagittal alignments. And they looked at something for the coronal alignment. They looked at the medial proximal tibial angle. And for the sagittal alignment, they looked at the um, proximal tibial angle on the lateral radiograph. So they defined a whole bunch of things as normal. So what's considered normal? So articular reduction was considered adequate when both the gap and the step-off were less than two millimeters. Coronal alignment, looking at that medial proximal tibial angle, was 87 degrees plus or minus five. And then sagittal eye angle, looking at the posterior proximal tibial angle of nine degrees plus or minus five, and then condylar widening, which is between zero and five millimeters. So of this huge group of patients, only 14% of the patients had conversion totaling octoplasty after a mean follow-up of 6.5 years. No one underwent a unicondylar knee arthroplasty, only got total knee arthroplasty. The group with conversion total knee arthroplasty has significantly higher percentages of inadequate condylar widening, inadequate articular congruity, coronal malalignment, and sagittal malalignment. The survival rate was 84% for the native knee. So in general, if you have a patient has a tibial plateau fracture, you say 84% eh, chance of survivalship at this mean follow-up of not undergoing conversion total knee replacement. If you had a gap of greater than 8.5 millimeters, we're on a kick for numbers from the last episode, and a step off of greater than 6 millimeters, these were independently associated with conversion to total neoarthroplasty and lower survival rates. Postoperatively, so you've done your surgery, you're trying to get the best reduction as possible. Does that, does that preclude or does that help a patient not have to undergo conversion to total neoarthroplasty? Interestingly enough, condylar widening or residual incongruity of two to four millimeters was not associated with increased risk of total neoarthroplasty compared with adequate fracture fixation of less than two millimeters. And it has a ratio of 0.6. Is it protective? However, an articular incongruity of greater than four millimeters resulted in an increased risk of conversion total neoarthroplasty. And if they had a gap or step off between four to six millimeters, that was 2.6 greater risk of, or that was a conversion rate of 2.7, I'm sorry. And a gap or step off of greater than six millimeters further increased the risk of conversion to total neoarthroplasty with a hazard ratio of five. Coronal and sagittal malalignment of the tibia were also associated with conversion to total neoarthroplasty. The hazard ratios were 1.6 and 3.7. And the risk to conversion was higher among with those with the abnormal coronal alignment. Um, and you can see that the time frames that were put out there. Um, and sagittal alignment as well too. So preoperatively, you can use those metrics for counseling a patient, right? You say to a patient, look, you have more than 8.5 millimeters of widening or greater than six millimeters of um, step off. So your likelihood of being converted to a total knee arthroplasty is higher. So that's preoperative counseling. And then postoperatively, 
those are parameters to aim for. You know, so try to aim for those minus the two less than two millimeter um, in certain planes and getting for appropriate alignment in the coronal and sagittal planes to try to reduce the likelihood of um, needing to undergo a conversion total neonatoplasty. The only problem is that we don't know about ligamentous injuries because this obviously affects outcomes. Um, they said from a reported amount, obviously self-reporting from patients, only seven of the 477 patients underwent a reoperation from meniscal or ligamentous repair, um, which would be interesting. Um, it might be they compared, you know, those who did and did not undergo conversion total neonatoplasty. It might be look interesting to look at patients who only underwent conversion total neonatoplasty and look at all the different factors associated with it, and then timing to conversion total neonatoplasty, right? What factors impact the, let's you know, say, shorter likelihood of undergoing conversion total neonatoplasty or longer likelihood of undergoing total neonatoplasty as well from a tibial plateau fracture? Tell the truth, Skip. Did you like it? Not if you liked it. I thought there was a lot of information in here. I actually found it interesting that the less than two millimeter, sorry, two to four millimeter step off didn't actually impact outcomes. I don't think it's going to change. Condo widening. The condo widening. I'm sorry, condo widening. I know there there were a lot of terms in here that kind of overlapped with each other, like step off, condo widening, articular incongruity. You know, it, it was a little bit, a little bit harder to follow when it came to the different terms when in my mind, it just like the joint look good or doesn't look good? Does it look anatomic or does it not look anatomic? So there were a lot of numbers in here. I don't know if it's going to change what people do clinically. I think it might be a counseling issue. I think this is another, I mean, I'll tell you, I liked it. My turn to talk now. I liked it. You're allowed to like it. We can have differing opinions. But but I liked it more because I'm like, this is like testable item after testable item after testable item. It's just test fodder. When you do your maintenance certification and you get tested on this, you're going to high five the fact that this, this was going to be, this is just, it's like almost assured that this will be an, a, a, a web-based longitudinal assessment article. There was a previous one a few years back. I, I can, I can just see it now that this in a couple of years is going to be um, one of the selected items for, for the test. 8.5 millimeters, like, seven, six millimeters. Boom, it's boom. Like the, the intersection of trauma and joints. I mean, how much, how more orthopedic can you get? It's everything we aspire to be and more. The gift that keeps on giving, the tibial plateau fracture. <laughs> yeah, that's the jelly of the month club, but we'll, we'll save that for the next Christmas episode. Perfect. It'll be fun. <laughs> All right. So our honorable mentions go to the following. Comparison of intramedullary nails in the treatment of trochanteric and subtrochanteric fractures, an observational study of over 13,000 fractures in the Norwegian hip fracture register by Gronhog et al. This study indicates that there might be a slightly increased risk of reoperation at one in three years for the short trigon intertan nail compared with other short nails in widespread use, specifically in Norway. In analysis of long nails, the trigon TAN slash FAN nail was associated with a higher risk of reoperation at one and three years in the treatment of trochanteric and subtrochanteric fractures compared to the long gamma-3 nail. Faster rate of correction with distal femoral transficial screw versus plates and hemiepiphyodysis for coronal plane knee deformity, age and sex-matched cohorts of skeletally, skeletally immature patients. My McKinley et al., there's a visual summary for this and it's also permanently free. The purpose of the study was to compare the rates of correction for hemiepiphodysis this is guided growth, essentially, in skeletal immature patients, comparing distal femoral transficial screws 
to growth modulation plates in age and sex matched cohorts with corona deformities. Um, the results show that transphylocele screws may correct coronal knee deformities during the initial treatment phase more quickly than growth modulation plates in distal femoral guided growth. Whether or not they do testable numbers here, it's hard to say. They have numbers like 1.69 millimeters per month or 2.64 millimeters per month when it came to the first plates. And then they also had to look at the um, screws and that sort of modulation plates. And they had different numbers as well too and degrees when it came to screws versus plates. So you can look at it, check it out. The last article was Quick Dash and PRWE, which stands for the Patient Rated Wrist Evaluation, are not optimal patient reported outcomes after distal radius fracture due to sealing effect. Potential implications for future research by Bell et al. This is permanently free. There's a shortened version of the disabilities of the arm, shoulder, and hand, which is the DASH questionnaire, also known as the Quick Dash, and patient-rated wrist evaluation. And it did demonstrate sealing effects when using to assess the outcomes of distal radius fracture management. Some patients achieving sealing scores did not consider their wrist to be normal. So the authors said that this patient reported these patient-reported outcomes may not be the best when looking at distal radius fractures because it may not actually capture unhappy patients or patients that don't consider themselves normal, even though they rate highly on these scores. So they did call for future research, future research on patient-reported outcome assessment tools for distal radial fractures to aim to limit the ceiling effect, especially for individuals or groups that are more likely to achieve a ceiling score. So if you're in the mood for developing a patient-reported outcome score, let's get at it for the distal radius fractures. And we have found Burdell, Mr. Udall. There you go. Another episode under the belt, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Number 40. Make sure you don't miss out on number 41. Hit the notification bell. Give us a five-star rating. Check out the backlogs. Thanks for listening. And uh, we are out of time, right? I think we're out, out of time. time. Yeah. So Until we'll try time. to do better next time. Hopefully your case is ready to go. We're still on hold here. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.